The new title that I have changed it to is a quip, and I hope that Michael Pollan will forgive me. It's called Eat Meat, Not Too Little, Mostly Fat. Well, I started laughing because you said, would you argue with, and I thought, whatever it is, yes. <laughs> but I actually <laughs> can't find anything in particular to argue with there. Um, the the When you're talking about the risk rewards of a potential therapy, um, that, that's, what, that's what you want to consider when you are considering trying something, right? So if, if it, the risks are low, in other words, if it's something that's safe to try and it doesn't cost a lot and it's unlikely to have bad repercussions, then that's one reason that you'd be more likely to try it. And if the potential rewards are very high, so if you have some kind of condition that other people have been reporting improvement by trying uh, an all-animal diet. For example, if you have chronic digestive issues like uh, IBD or IBS or, or colitis, or if you have an autoimmune condition like arthritis or asthma, or if you have a psychiatric condition like depression or anxiety, uh, those are all things that people have been reporting improvement and oftentimes complete remission of. So the payoff that you stand to gain is really quite high and the risk is really quite low. And so, so that is one of the main reasons that I'm so eager to share this, even though we don't have clinical trials, uh, because you could find out something that could change the trajectory of your life as it did for me. Welcome to the herd and thanks for listening. We're happy to help you have informed conversations with your healthcare providers, but please do not treat anything we say in this or any of our episodes as medical advice. Even when the guests are physicians, they're not your physician. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it, share it, give it a good rating and follow and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Meet Your Herdmates Sodcast. I am pleased to be joined today by one of my Sod sisters. That would be uh, Amber O'Hearn. Welcome, Amber. Thank you, Peter. What an honor. Um, so your you were born in Canada, but you've been in the U.S. for a while, so um, we can both claim you. Uh, you <laughs> you're a data scientist by profession. What's that? Uh, well, uh, I have worked as a programmer in the with, with the object of collecting and analyzing data and trying to figure out what story it might tell. So you know how to code? Is that... <laughs> yes, I have degrees in computer science, in fact, which I guess isn't really a guarantee that people know how to code. It turns out software engineering is quite the craft, but I managed to learn a bit of that as well. And mathematics, computer science, linguistics, psychology. Wow. Um, Russian, one of your languages, is that right? <laughs> yes, I, I also have a degree in Russian, studied it for four years and did one semester in St. Petersburg. I'm a little bit rusty, 
and I, uh, I of course, don't have uh, native fluency, but it's a language that I really love. Hmm. Okay, so somewhere along the way, you got interested, one, in altering your diet to achieve specific purposes, um, and then you really became what I'll call a private scientist, um, digging into the literature to a degree that m many don't. Um, so I'd really like to explore that. One, because of this, we live in an age when you can do that. I, I'm, I'm continually amazed at what I don't have to go to the university library for anymore. Um, it, it's, there's a yes. world of information available to us today. But you and I started, I think, with the same book, but not at the same time. You were a bit earlier discovering protein power, if that's right. That's correct. And that book did send me to the university library, which was where we still had to go at that time. <laughs> and it was exciting enough that I made that trip many times. And I'm very, I'm still very grateful to the Eads for having set me on this path, this rabbit hole that I'm still down in a couple decades later. Mm -hmm. So where were you living then? That was in Halifax, okay, Nova Scotia. And the university would have been? Dalhousie Medical Library, yeah. Microfiche. My, oh, <laughs> the relics. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I'm old enough to remember punch cards. Um, so, okay. Um, and you, so that's about what kind of time frame, years? Um, it was 1997 that I found that book. It, it had just come out. And so I guess that's 23 years ago. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> time flies. Um, and about 10 years before I discovered it. So, um, it's a timeless classic, really. I still recommend that book to people, even though many low carb diet books have come out since then. And even though I think they've changed their views on some details, I think the, the great picture, the, the sort of grand picture that it presents hasn't changed. And I think is a great presentation Yeah, in, in, uh, when I spoke to, to Mike, he said that, what's changed is what's we've discovered since what we've discovered since then mm -hmm. not necessarily that anything needs to be corrected but so much more has sort of emerged both from clinical practice as well as research so um yeah i i too that's one of the books in fact that's one of the books i look for in used bookstores and and buy <laughs> copies to give away so um, very much indebted to Mike and Mary Dan Eads for that work. Um, but like some people, myself included, you kind of discovered over time that you needed to maybe become a bit lower carb than perhaps somebody or other people would be able to, to remain. So if you could just talk a little bit about that. Sure. So when I first started a low-carb diet, it was very effective for the problem that was bothering me at the time, which was just weight, really. Um, and 
over time, I found that even though I think every time I stopped a low carb diet, I would start gaining gaining weight very quickly. So I didn't do it very often. <laughs> um, but it wasn't enough all by itself to keep my weight down. And in fact, over the course of uh, just over a decade, I had, well, I had aged and I had had a couple of children and I was also taking antidepressant medications, which may have had an effect on my weight, but I had very slowly over the years begun gaining weight again. And um, one of the things that I discovered later was that drastically cutting back on carbohydrates was something that was necessary for me to lose that weight again, but it wasn't just carbohydrates. And I don't know how much detail you want to hear about this, but I actually uh, started by taking all plants out of my diet completely. And at first, I thought that it was just an effect of the amount of carbohydrate. In fact, we were calling this diet, the people I discovered it from, were calling it zero carb at the time, even though they knew very well that animal foods sometimes have bits of carbohydrate in them, like milk products, for example, or shellfish or organ meats. Um, and that other things that we weren't eating, if you exclude plants, might not really have any carbohydrate. Either they have only fibrous carbohydrate or they're oils, and so they have no carbohydrate at all. And eventually, um, I decided that, it, you know, through the process of discovery and talking to other people, that it had more to do with the plant factors than the carbohydrates themselves. So although the, the drastic lowering of carbohydrates probably has something to do with it, too. Okay, so if we take all the plant source foods out of the diet, then that means that this is very different than many people would believe is possible. Um, there's many uh, bits of what I call received wisdom that say that we must have fiber in the diet and we must have vitamin C in the diet and we must have so much glucose every day in our diet. And, and yet, clearly, you've been on this for a decade now? Yes, over now. It's, it's coming up on 12 years next year. How long does it take for scurvy to show up in British seamen? Um, uh, shouldn't we be seeing that by now? Or? Well, yes, scurvy takes about a month or two to develop. But fortunately, I have been getting vitamin C all along not because I'm taking it, although from time to time I have taken other sources of vitamin C, but for the most part, I've just been getting it in meat. It actually, it's, uh, it's a bit of a myth that meat flesh doesn't contain vitamin C. Granted, the amount is kind of small, but the amount that you need in order to prevent scurvy is also pretty small. The RDA, for some reason, has been, in my view, expanded beyond inflated, I guess is the word I would want, beyond what's truly necessary and certainly far beyond what's necessary to prevent scurvy. And you've given presentations that go through this and I'll link to some of them. Um, but one of your quotes, and forgive me for butchering it, but basically everything we think we know about human nutrition has been received through the lens of carbohydrate-based diets. Is that close enough to what you said? Yes, 
so RDAs, like, like all of the other reference ranges that we've developed over time, are, are developed on a population, and the population basically is a grain-based diet eating population. And so anything that you learn about what a normal range of anything should be is, is, has that as its base assumption. And sometimes for some things, the, the ranges might not change very much. So I'm willing to bet that the, the acid base level in human blood isn't going to change that much to, depending on what diet you're eating. I think that we need it in a strict range. Um, but something like how much of a certain nutrient you need very much will depend on what other foods you're eating. And, and uh, that's an interesting point to consider when we look at things like these hard and fast or seemingly hard and fast. Uh, again, I think to be fair, there's always this lost in the translation between the research and the policy recommendations and then the implementation, that, that things keep getting lost in each one of those steps. So, um, but again, I think the, the key point from your experience and your experience is not a singular one that there are people who, for a variety of reasons, find that their health is best when they follow an exclusive or nearly so animal source food diet. Yes, it's very interesting. That was certainly the case for me. So as I alluded to, I had gained a lot of weight, even though I was on a low-carb diet, and that resolved... Um, I had gone up to almost probably up to 200 pounds. After 196, I, I didn't look at the scale again. <laughs> I'm a five foot six woman, and I think my ideal weight is probably around 130. Um, and so that was great, but the thing that really was important for me and the reason that I've stuck to this, you would think of it as maybe a very strict regime after all this time is that my my depression that I mentioned had been re-diagnosed as bipolar type 2, uh, which is a very serious psychiatric condition, and it went into complete remission after a very short time actually on the diet. Of course, I didn't know it was remission then because that's, that, that disease has such a long cycle that it could have reappeared, so I couldn't conclude that right away. Well, when I look back, uh, my symptoms stopped essentially right away after I started the plant-free diet. Wonderful. Um, to be relieved or released from that, that's, um, and I think to a degree that the medications really manage rather than release. And then as you mentioned, there are a number of effects that those medications can also produce in addition to what you're taking them for. Some of them yeah. are not pleasant. Um, <laughs> and so eating, eating beef, um, I, I know of no adverse side effects at this point. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> As I mentioned, I, I've, I've accumulated quite a menagerie of pet peeves. Um, and one of those is this persistent belief that there's such a thing as too much animal source food in the diet. Um, yeah, that is 
Well, certainly from my perspective, that's strange because that's all of what I eat. So <laughs> it's about as much as it could be. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it'd be hard to imagine more. Um, the the idea, these are all associations based on nutritional epidemiology of chronic disease. And in the disciplines that I'm trained and used to, they will reference that work and bring it into their paper. And oftentimes it's not really challenged or examined. It's just assumed to be the case. And it, yeah, well, I don't think any it's ever really been tested in the way that you would want to make a claim like that because well, yeah. as I'm sure you know, all of the all of the epidemiological studies that I've looked at have again, and it's like the reference ranges we were talking about. So they have this base population, and you're talking about a little more meat and a little a little less uh, fruits and vegetables, basically. And then there's so many reasons why people might have more meat in their diet that may be related to eating other things that are not so good. Like we might, it might be associated with eating a lot of fast food. It might be associated with just not being the kind of person who cares about listening to what they've been told for a long time <laughs> because anyone who's been listening is going is going to think that reducing meat is what you're supposed to do and so if you're doing all the things that you're supposed to do then you're probably actually doing things that that are good for your health like exercise and maybe quitting smoking and some it, of them are bound way to be too right complicated <laughs> yeah. I mean, right so if we wanted to know if more meat was going to be detrimental to health, um, you'd have to look at diets that are really based on meat and not based on grains, I think. And, and the best we can do there is maybe some anthropological work or maybe people who have been looking at um, archaeology, evolutionary biology, and things like that to say, uh, okay, were these diseases prevalent in populations that were eating much more animal source food? And there are a few examples of those that we could talk about. Um, I was, and I, I mentioned to you when we got started, and I have to stop doing that because a lot of stuff goes by and it's like, oh, did, did we already <laughs> talk about that? Um, or, uh, so what... You, a recent talk that you gave, and again, I'll put the link in the notes, but you, you're talking about something called a lipovore. So can, can yes. we uh, sink our teeth, so to speak, into that? Yes, and thanks for bringing it up. The lipovore is a, a word I coined. I'm not the first to use it. There's a, a polar bear scientist who uses it to describe them, Andrew Durache, I think his name is. Um, but my idea was that looking at the, the way that humans have been eating meat for a long time, if we think about meat, most people who think about meat today think about the protein part. And, and that's really because the carbohydrates have taken over the role of energy in our diets. But most of our long, long history as a species and, and beyond, we didn't have access to the year-round carbohydrate sources that we do now to any degree uh, like we do now. And so what, what I 
had been realizing is that fat as the energy source in our diet is so important to us as a species that it's even though I've been liking to call us carnivores to emphasize the importance of meat in the diet, it's not meat in the sense that most people are thinking about as this, this um, completely trimmed, lean thing that, that's on the side of the plate next to your potatoes, but rather the, the fat that comes with it is actually the, the most salient part to me about what humans needed as a species. And, and I thought about that from not just the historical and paleoanthropological kind of studies, but also looking in comparison to other species that have meat in their diet. We seem to need fat and rely on it a lot more than other species do. So there's a couple threads to tug on there a little bit. I <laughs> um, Another of my menagerie is that people in animal agriculture, again, talk about protein food. And I understand how we got there. It's decades of demonizing animal fat and cholesterol even. Um, but I think that we are would be wise to shift the conversation to emphasize that when we eat animal source foods, we're getting more than and air quotes around the word just protein uh, and and even we're not even talking about protein properly but that's another topic but all of the nutrients that are best or solely sourced from animal source food in the diet um, are all coming along with the animal source protein um, but you're making the point in that presentation that, and as you just said, unlike some of the, say, cats, um, who can utilize protein for energy, we don't, re that's not really why we should be eating protein, and the fat is the preferred fuel. And there's several things that you've pointed to that in terms of even a lean human's body fat composition compared to relatively close relatives or other animals. Um, one of the striking things was the fatness of human infants compared to seals. Um, and, and this process or this condition called ketosis, which... I think too many people still associate with disease. So are there any of those threads that you could <laughs> follow or I'll try to repeat them? So many. Well, let's start with, with getting energy from protein. So obviously we can get energy from protein and it is classified as one of the three macronutrients, right? So there's carbohydrate, there's protein, and there's fat. And the reason they're classed together is because they are sources that can be used as energy by the body. But it's it's always talking about pet peeves. It's always kind of bothered me that protein is in that category because just because we can use it for that doesn't mean that we really should necessarily, uh, or that we even do. Protein has this kind of double life <laughs> where it is, I, I like to think of it more as a micronutrient, even though it's not 
technically considered that way, but it's something that we need. We have daily requirements for, like you said, protein is just also way too general a word. We have needs for specific dietary amino acids, and that's what that's the reason that we need protein. We don't we don't need it for energy, and in fact, as humans in particular, we have limits on how much protein we can use for energy before it starts to become um, not just inefficient, but um, well, it causes problems that have been attributed to the the metabolic waste products of metabolizing protein that might be hard to to get rid of. Um, it's been found that, for example, uh, in explorers, there's this phenomenon called rabbit starvation. And what that means, what they were referring to and why they called it rabbit starvation is because you're out in the wild and the only animals, the only source of food that you have are lean animals like rabbits. They don't have enough fat on them. And you as a person are already lean and fit and you're not getting very much fat from your own body stores. And what happens in that situation is, first of all, you get ravenous because you're just not able to get enough energy from pure protein. And you also get uh, symptoms of illness like nausea, headaches, um, diarrhea, fatigue. And the cure for that, the only cure for it is, well, you'll, you'll have a ravenous craving for um, energy in some other form, be it fat or carbohydrate. And either of those is sufficient to deal with that problem. Now, other species, like you mentioned, have a greater capacity to get their energy from protein. I think cats can get about 70% is the figure that I remember from, from Mickey Bendor's thesis. Um, a lot of my understanding of this comes directly from Mickey Bendor. I'm very grateful for his work. And uh, even dogs can eat a lot more protein than we do. And I think that one of the reasons for this may come from our our heritage. So we didn't start um, as carnivores as far back as the many millions of years that felines, for example, did. We came from um, primates. We are primates, right? And we had this heritage that was much more herbivorous earlier, uh, back when we, before we took a different route from the way that our closest relatives, gorillas and chimps did. And so we have this folivorous leaf eating history in which we were getting most of our energy from fiber, which we were then turning into fat in the gut. And so I think, um, it can help our understanding by realizing that a fat-based metabolism is already what we started with as opposed to a protein-based metabolism. And, and there's a, there are these adaptations to the digestion, uh, digestive anatomy and physiology that gets us to that fat base. So, a cow, for example, has this huge fermentation vat that we call a rumen and then some additional structures before it ever gets to the acidic stomach. Um, as you said, some of our more ancient ancestors had very enlarged um, large intestines and cecums, so their fermentation took place after the small intestine, uh, more like a horse. Um, and then we have some animals like pigs that are more like us, but then they still have 
uh, on large cecums. So, um, but at the end of the day, we end up when we're running on an appropriate diet, getting about the same amount of energy from fat, even though the diet coming in is is very very different. Um, yeah, and I like that that approach of cross species because you know, no matter how much we know from the past, uh, there's a degree to which it's always speculative, but we can look, we can just look directly at what a human digestive tract looks like and compare it to other animals and see where the similarities and differences are. And you can see that even compared to gorillas and chimps, which are a lot like us in many ways, uh, the the amount of volume, intestinal volume that's devoted to the fermentation of fiber is just much, much less in humans. It, we just don't have the capacity. And so that's the other the other angle is that, you know, we have we have energy needs. We're limited in how much we can get from protein, and we're limited in how much we can get from fiber. And so the the only real choices left are fat and carbohydrates. And from a, an historical perspective, it, it had to be fat because there just wasn't enough carbohydrate around. And and the carbohydrate that there was, a lot of it, so if you talk about um, root vegetables, right, tubers, or I think in the literature they're called underground storage organs because <laughs> um, they're storing energy underground. Uh, but the problem with those, one of the problems is that they're kind of seasonal and you can't necessarily find them all the time. Uh, a second problem is that in order to get at the carbohydrate that's stored into them, they're mostly fibrous, is you'd have to cook them to get maximum yield and we didn't have fire until relatively quite recently. And then third and related, fire can help with this as well, but um, they tend to have toxins in them. And the reason that they have toxins in them is because they don't want to be eaten. Yes. <laughs> and so it's, a, it's like a, a defense mechanism. And most roots, it turns out that if you don't um, process them in some manner, there will be too much toxicity for a human to deal with. Obviously, a human can deal with some amount of toxicity, just like livestock can deal with some amount of toxicity. We're, we're very um, adapted to doing that, but there are obviously there are limits to that ability. Well, and it could be argued that herbivores have spent a longer time developing methods of detoxifying or eliminating toxins from the feeds that they consume. Um, someone recently said that seeds are designed to be eaten and pooped out with little packages of fertilizer. Um, not so much with leaves or stalks or roots. Those are parts of the plants that tend to be um, essential for the survival of that particular plant, whereas seeds are the way to disperse and, and perpetuate so a little right. different. Well, the seeds, the seeds themselves, you know, you're right. If you're, if you're the kind of animal that's swallowing them whole with the, the fruit that they're consuming, for example, and they don't digest the seed, that's no problem for the animal. But within the seed itself, that's actually very fiercely protected because that's the reproduction and reproduction is absolutely crucial for mm -hmm. for the survival of the species so mm. you know nuts for example 
which are kind of seed or legumes or even grains have a lot of toxicity that need to be overcome if you're going to actually eat them rather than ensure that they're not digested. <laughs> mm-hmm. And again, the the received wisdom is that we need those for some reason in our diet. And um, so it's interesting to consider additional information for perspective and say, when would we have had those over the last 300,000 years? Well, only arguably for the last 10,000 at the most. And a lot of these were really regionalized and we didn't get access to them until the last couple hundred years, certainly on the scale that we have now. Um, I, I need to remember to send you part of Hans Rosling's um, personal story where he talks about the experience of, of being in medicine in some African country when a rare neurological disorder showed up. And he describes mm. the scene of being in the leader's office, the national leader, and the man, you know, politicians must be seen to be doing something. And uh, Rosling was coming in there saying, well, I'm pretty sure it's not infectious, but I don't really know what it is. And the leader then challenges him with, well, why did you send your family away? Okay, so you busted me on that one. And then the, the, the scene goes to where, again, in the, in the search for something to do, I must do something, the leader said, well, surely it would be a good idea, it wouldn't hurt anything, whatever, to um, stop bus traffic between where this is occurring and the capital city. And in a moment of weakness by his own admission, he said, yeah, that probably, you know, okay. And then something very bad happened, and I won't take away from the story, um, um, the, the book is factfulness, and uh, it has to do with improperly processed cassava being the cause. Oh, I know a little bit and, about that. <laughs> and it was so well known that they had stopped putting it on all the textbooks. And it was so well known that you needed to process it properly, that when it showed up, nobody thought of it. Wow. And, and, and. You know, there were reasons that led to apparently there was some kind of a drought and crop failure. So the government was buying all of the properly processed cassava they could get at a good price. And the farmers were selling everything that they had, but then they're hungry and they need to eat something. So they were eating improperly processed cassava and seeing yeah. this show up. And, and the and, tragedy there is that drought increases it because the, the plant senses it needs more protection when there's a drought. And, and um, moreover, malnutrition increases our response to it. So, yeah, what a storm. Yeah, yeah. and, and the, there was additional tragedy that took place in there, and I'll send you an excerpt. Um, so, yes, these, I, I think that there's... Um, I think the first time I saw Georgia Ede was at um, like second um, ancestral health symposium when she gave her little shop of horrors talk. That uh, talk was very influential to me. Yes, okay. excellent talk. Um, 
Okay, so you've now been on this personal journey, and you've been do one for yourself. Um, but then you kind of get fascinated by this topic. <laughs> Is that fair? Um, yes, can't help myself. <laughs> yeah, I understand. So you, well, I guess there's one thing before we move much further. Uh, the 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 tie for for us, the bridge for us, is that obviously the ruminants are this primary bridge between the most abundant carbohydrate in the biosphere, that being cellulose. And thanks to this teeming multitude of microorganisms that they host within their rumens, that resource that we can't utilize directly is converted into volatile fatty acids. So that even though a cow eats a diet less than 5% crude fat, 70 to 80% of her energy ends up coming from fat. Um, right. And then, so just to kind of put this back into the framework of the theory of modern human beings evolving, developing, we, we, we had a shifting climate that shifted the, the landscape away from dense forest to more savanna-like grass and tree kind of structure, more open. And starting, if I'm remembering the numbers right, it's like 60 million years ago we have evidence of grasses showing up. Um, then 20-some million years ago we have the ruminants showing up. And then what is it, 3 million years ago, we've got hominids. And then like 30, 300,000 years ago, we've got modern humans showing up, something on that order. So it seems to me rational to say we have the grass resource. Animals develop the ability to utilize that resource as primary food source. No more fruit, no more browse, although some ruminants are browsers, but the animals that are eating grass primarily. And and then but but we have other carnivores that or we, we have carnivores operating in that landscape that are utilizing those ruminants or other herbivores, large animals. You called the mega fauna. mega fauna. Um, so what was the niche for you know, a bipedal, uh, hairless, or, you know, whatever, ape. Um, what was the niche that they exploited? Well, it's really interesting. If you look at the, the ones that are still there, <laughs> what they're eating is mostly, like I said, leaves and other forms of fiber, fruit, uh, which is mostly fiber, the kind of fruit that we're talking about. And... They also eat, they also hunt occasionally, but what they're hunting are not these megafauna that are out on grasses. They're hunting small other animals. Uh, for example, uh, chimps will eat monkeys. They can, tear, they can hunt them down in groups by surrounding them, and, and they can tear them apart with their hands. And, of course, they have large teeth to tear into their flesh, so they're very effective at, at doing that kind of hunting. And I think that a lot of the time people don't think about 
chimpanzees as being carnivorous in that way, but but they are, and I think it's a, a really important nutritional component to their diets, even if it's a small one. But the the thing about humans or the hominids that we came from before being human too is that at a certain point we started hunting these animals that were that were large and that were on grass, so great big fatty animals. And in order to do that, um, well, some of them, uh, you know, I've heard Mickey Bendor talk about how some of them are not that hard to catch. Maybe you can, like, push them. You, there's the canonical pushing buffalo herds over a, a cliff or, or, you know, luring them into falling somehow, and that that is one thing. But we also have been proficient bow hunters and spear hunters for a very long time. But those tools are actually really complex, and um, it's widely held that in order to get to that level of skill at hunting, you would have to have a lot of adaptation, including a lot of intelligence to get there. And and then, you know, a lot of our intelligence and our brain is attributed to having this meat in the diet. So you're we're faced with this problem of how did we get started if we needed intelligence to hunt we needed big brains to hunt but we needed the meat to get the big brains in the first place how did that happen and for a long time there have been you know um schools of thought that have said that we originally started as scavengers and there's been people who argue for that or against that to different degrees but one of the recent pieces of work that came out that really put it into place for me and made me feel like <laughs> there is no doubt doubt left about the role of scavenging in human evolution was from um, Jessica Thompson and other authors who had a recent paper called the uh, called Origins of the Human Predatory Pattern. And what they were talking about is this very specific way that humans managed to bridge that gap from small game hunting to large game hunting and that it wasn't just a matter of bigger and bigger prey. In fact, it was a matter of um, getting access to the nutrition that was inside the leftovers from the other carnivores that had adapted, specifically the fat, the marrow inside bones, and the brains inside skulls. And, and so that, that piece, that puzzle piece to me, really helped to explain a lot of different things about humans. So, so number one, that's not just a source of, of nutrition, which is important, but in terms of micronutrients, including protein, <laughs> but it's a huge source of energy. And I think that that, that really helped to bootstrap uh, a lot of the changes that came, for example, to our, our digestive system later. Um, the other thing about it is that it doesn't require any kind of sophisticated tools to get because you're you're going out. It's it's actually an act of gathering. If you think about the hunter-gatherer dichotomy, what most people think of when they think of hunting versus gathering is hunting is for meat and gathering is for plants, but Actually, it may not have started so much that way because bones um, and leftovers from 
carnivores is actually something that you gather. And one thing that being bipedal allowed us to do is to carry things. And so we could have done one of two things or both. We could have gathered up these um, bones and skulls and taken them back somewhere to eat them, or we could have carried the tool we needed to get into them onto the field. And that tool is just simply a large stone that you can grip and hit in a percussive manner. And so the insight from that paper, Origins of the Human Predatory Pattern, is that this manner of accessing nutrition, this percussive tool, is um, something that helped to bridge the gap between um, where we would have used that tool possibly before in cracking open nuts to getting large access to animal-based nutrition. And I think the, the one, the, the idea of because it's a more energy-rich diet, more nutrient-rich diet, the, the trade-off between smaller digestive tracts and the energy required to support bigger ones. So when we reduce the size of the digest, when we, when the, the digestive tract reduced in size, there was a decrease in the metabolic energy necessary to support it. And that energy, in addition to the building blocks, could then be available to support larger brains, I think was one aspect. Um, yes, that's really important because there had already been this theory for a long time, a hypothesis called the expensive tissue hypothesis by Alo and Wheeler in the 90s, who noticed that, um, that there was both a reduction in size of tissue in the human digestive tract and an expansion in size of the brain, and they noticed that both of those types of tissue are extremely metabolically expensive. They needed a lot of energy to run. And they figured that the only way that you could make that happen is if you put, or, or rather that the reason that those happen together is that the only way that you could spare energy from the brain is by reducing energy in, in making tissue for the digestive tract. And if you put that together with <laughs> the availability of a high energy diet coming from animal fat, then, then it, it all makes a lot of sense because you've got the energy to expand the brain you've, and you've got um, the ability to let go of that intestinal tissue that was devoted, that you needed so much <laughs> to devote to breaking down, to fermenting fiber. Um, if you look at the size of a chimpanzee or gorilla gut, it's just huge because they need so much space and they need to fill it constantly mm -hmm. in order to get enough energy. And so it, it's, it makes a lot of sense that this, this discovery, I want to call it, of being able to make use of all this animal fat suddenly frees up um, this, this adaptive possibility that wasn't possible before. And it indeed, there, the, there is a, a um, first phase, you might say, of brain expansion that happens in the homo or in, in the hominin line at the point where Australopithecus are, are um, starting to uh, have the, brain, the first brain expansion that we see in that line.
Mm-hmm. And I, I love the way you describe, and I, I know that Dr. Thompson described it as well, um, but so we imagine these creatures with hammer stones in their hands, and they're banging away doing what they're doing, and the hammer stone breaks. And they just keep doing what they're doing, but at some point, that then becomes the next thing. The bit that breaks off becomes the next thing. This part really struck me as well, because even now with chimps who are using percussive stones percussively, they will have flints come off, <laughs> or, or not flints, but flakes. Um, flakes, yes. And the those flakes they ignore, as you would, because it's just like it's just a mess that's happening as a byproduct of what you're really trying to do. But how many t- if you if what you have in your hand <laughs> is a bone that's got little bits of meat flesh on it, and what keeps falling into your lap is a flake that is exactly the right kind of instrument that's going to allow you to scrape that that flesh and and chop it uh, efficiently. That it. it Sooner or later, you're going to notice that you can do that. I think I just have this vivid imagination of of the aha moment happening again and again with that particular thing. Far side comes to mind, but um, <laughs> it does. But so so it as you've said, part of the narrative has been that these cut marks on bones were evidence of the earliest tool use. And what Dr. Thompson and others were able to realize, sometimes from pre-existing research, but in in some cases they were finding it, that when they began to look for these percussive or concussive marks on the bones and the shattering of the bones, that became the evidence of tool use once they had the insight uh, of this, and that pushes this date of tool use well back into history. Uh, As I'm recalling, it was on the order of 100,000 years, but I could be completely off on that. Um, Yeah, I'm not sure where their research was looking at, but yeah, it's really, you know, this comes back to data science as well. With with the data scientist, what they're doing is you're taking a whole whack, let's say, t- technical term of data and trying to find patterns in it. And the patterns that you're going to find always depend on which features you choose to look at. <laughs> and so um, we're really bias towards seeing that which we're looking for in other words and so i think what the you know the great insight that they had in their work one of the many great insights is that there's something that we could be looking for that we may have been missing all this time because we we're so focused on looking for cuts and and in a sense it's almost as if now, perhaps this is oversimplifying and maybe it's not accurate at all, but there was the narrative and people recognized the problems, but the narrative was almost too good or too too 
perfect. And so we'll just ignore it or we'll find ways to explain around it. We won't look. Um, so the other point, and, and I think I got this from um, listening to or reading Gary Taubes, is sometimes it's the tools that we have available to ask the questions with are going to yes. dictate what kind of answers we can get. And so it's we we need new technology as well as new insights to apply and even as you say to look at the data itself uh cast a new eye on it and and maybe we've been uh what was it somebody said if if you have it, it would be like somebody who has a blue filter and a yellow filter on their glasses and all of a sudden they become aware of the yellow filter and so they remove it and now things aren't green anymore, you know. It, and look, look, we've been wearing this filter. That's not the way things really look. Now <laughs> I see the way it, I still have a blue filter on. <laughs> so yes. it's, it, it, there is cause for a substantial amount of humility as we go along this journey. And, um, you know, we're, we're where we are and there's reasons and hopefully we can progress Um we're nowhere near being close to done with this, I think. Um, <laughs> I hope never. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we, we've got our run ahead of us, and then hopefully others will pick up the ball and, and move it forward. Um, so you, you are writing a book, but you're publishing it in an interesting way. Or, or, uh, could you talk a little bit about that so that people could come and, and uh, enjoy what sh you've done so far. Thanks for mentioning that. Yeah, I, I had an idea for a book and I started writing it and I thought about trying to work with a traditional publisher. Obviously that is the way to get a lot of reach and, you know, outsource um, important things that I'm not good at, like, um, cover and printing and all that. But eventually I decided that I really wanted to do it, um, well, my own way. <laughs> uh, I didn't want to be constrained by uh, what might be popular this year or making it, um, you know, to fit the things that maybe people might be looking for on a first pass. Like when I came to uh, a carnivore diet, and that's what the book is about. When I came to a carnivore diet, uh, I originally went there because I had weight problems that I wanted to solve. And probably many people who would be interested in buying a book about a carnivore diet might be focused on that. But there's so much more to the story about, um, about human evolution, about plants and what they're good for and what they're not good for and what they're needed for and what they how they might harm us. And uh, so what I decided to do is publish it myself, and I decided to make it available for everyone for free. And so to that end, I'm publishing it uh, in order, chapter by chapter, as I finish them online. And then the idea is that when I finish, I will do whatever editing is necessary to bring it back into a coherent whole and then offer print books for sale if people want it. But I wanted the uh, information to be available, and I'm up to Chapter 5 that's been released so far. And where, where can people find that? The site is called facultativecarnivore.com, facultative carnivore being all one word. That was my original title for the book, and what it means is um, – 
it's kind of a pun. Facultative can mean by choice, and I'm eating an all-meat diet by choice, but it also is a technical term. A facultative carnivore is uh, one that, like a like certain canines, where they are carnivorous by their needs, but they have the ability to get by eating other things, eating plants as a source of some nutrition. However, the new title that I have changed it to is a quip, and I hope that Michael Pollan will forgive me. It's called Eat Meat, Not Too Little, Mostly Fat. Excellent. Um, a point that returned to my mind, um, this, this idea that we prefer, we, that our ancestors preferentially preyed on the very large, very fatty animals. And today, with modern livestock production systems from genetics through nutrition, we increase the fattiness of the animals. Um, and, and what's interesting is if you look back a few decades, there were arguments about how you know, some animals, they were trying to, again, trying to explain, hang on to the animal fat causes heart disease. But if you eat this kind of animal that has less fat, it's better for you. Or, you know, if the fat's a little different or this, that, and the other thing. And so they were trying to find a way to have people eat red meat, which they wanted to do anyway, but feel less guilty about it. And so that was a winning strategy for a while. And it still sort of contaminates the landscape that we're trying to negotiate in. But this idea that we can increase the fattiness of muscle meat um, in our domesticated livestock is an interesting um, adaptation or bridge after you know, the exploitation of wildlife, now we can move to this. It is interesting because, like you said, the, the, the animals that we used to hunt, we've all hunted to extinction all of the largest, fattiest animals, and lef we're left with the, the slim pickings, let's say. <laughs> uh, and so uh, of them, <laughs> the cattle, for example, are among the largest uh, animals that we could choose left, but even they are, are smaller than the average animal that we used to hunt. And so the, the fact that we can breed, selectively breed and, and um, carefully fatten these animals to make them more like our heritage makes a, a lot of sense to me. Um, <laughs> a lot of people um, portray that as a certain kind of gluttony, but I think all it is is, you know, food wanting. <laughs> um, yeah. The yeah. the other uh, idea that that reminds me of is something that Brad Marshall taught me a lot about. He's a, a recent blogger. He, he has a blog called Fire in a Bottle talking about these ideas, and he also uh, spent some time as a pig farmer, and he studied dairy farms in early America and in Europe, and he's talked about the synergy that you get when you have, um, you have dairy cows and you, you get milk from them, and then you take the part that you really want, which is the cream, and you have the skim milk left over, which you can then feed to the pigs, which then makes them fatter, so that you're just 
making this this kind of increase of fat all around. So you've got you've got some grain that you can feed to the cattle to make them fatter, and this just it's a it's a big fat factory, really. Well, we we I think we should let them turn the carbohydrates into fat for us instead of us. Exactly. Um, <laughs> um, so, um, okay. Book is one resource. You're active on social media. People can find you on Twitter at Keto Carnivore. That's right. Yeah, I'm pretty active there and open to discussion and question. Um, sometimes I don't see them. If I if you've asked me something and I haven't answered, try again because um, <laughs> I do try to at least acknowledge everybody. Yeah, and and you've also. You started, um, uh, it, it, initially it was a, it was a one-day conference, um, and there were plans that got interrupted like everybody else's plans this year, um, but CarnivoryCon, so, and, and all of those talks are posted on YouTube and people can, can see them. Uh, how many people would come to where you live, um, which which has a certain irony from my perspective, to see uh, um, or to attend a, a program that was focused on a carnivorous lifestyle. How many people showed up the first year? <laughs> well, it was close to 300, and we, it was actually sold out, and we had a waiting list. It was capped off because the venue that we were using we were using both to give the talks and to have food served, and for for seating when you're when you're serving food, it takes up a lot more space. I was really uh, so happy and grateful for the overwhelmingly positive response that we got to that, and we had speakers and attendees from all over the world. It was just amazing, and we were so there were scientists talking about um, the sort of theoretical bases of a carnivorous diet, including, you know, this kind of paleontological uh, science as well as uh, pl plant scientists. Plant, uh, we had a plant biologist. We had clinicians who were using carnivore diets in their practices. We had, um, I, I talked about the, the RDAs that you had mentioned earlier, that talk, and just so many great talks uh, from all angles. And, yeah, I was really disappointed that we weren't able to continue it this year because I had two days <laughs> jammed packed full of great talks, and I hope that we'll be able to do that soon. I, I hope so as well. Um, so there's been so much that you've done to help others find their way, um, but I guess... If, if, if there are people who listen to this who are interested, I guess the, would you argue with someone suggesting there are a number of chronic conditions that could respond positively to a seemingly strict diet of meat of whatever form people 
choose for a variety of reasons, or at least animal source foods. Um, and, and you're not going to kill yourself and you can try it for a month and you can see if you get better, feel better, are happy. And you don't need to feel guilty about putting your life at risk, nor, and I could assure them that they're not going to ruin the planet by doing so. Um, what would be, is that a fair place to start a conversation or what would you suggest? Well, I started laughing because you said, would you argue with, and I thought, whatever it is, yes. <laughs> but I actually <laughs> can't find anything in particular to argue with there. Um, the, the, when you're talking about the risk rewards of a potential therapy, um, that, that's, what, that's what you want to consider when you are considering trying something, right? So if, if it, the risks are low... In other words, if it's something that's safe to try and it doesn't cost a lot and it's unlikely to have bad repercussions, then that's one reason that you'd be more likely to try it. And if the potential rewards are very high, so if you have some kind of condition that other people have been reporting improvement by trying uh, an all-animal diet, for example, if you have chronic digestive issues like uh, IBD or IBS or, or colitis, or if you have an autoimmune condition like arthritis or asthma, or if you have a psychiatric condition like depression or anxiety, uh, those are all things that people have been reporting re improvement and oftentimes complete remission of. So the payoff that you stand to gain is really quite high and the risk is really quite low. And so, so that is one of the main reasons that I'm so eager to share this, even though we don't have clinical trials, uh, because you could find out something that could change the trajectory of your life as it did for me. Are there other resources that you would want people to know about? <laughs> Other resources. Um, in addition to your book, in addition to um, what you put out in social media posts, are there groups or are there um, particular books besides Protein Power uh, that we mentioned earlier that you would say, if you want to find out some more, go here? Um, there are so many things that have positively influenced me. Um, we didn't get a chance to talk about it much today, but I was greatly influenced by some of Stephen Kunane's ideas. He has a book called Survival of the Fattest, and he's talking about this whole idea that babies are fat for a reason and the connection between that and ketosis. So that's something you could follow up with. Um, if you want support for questions about how to do a diet, there are many groups on Facebook that um, so can support you with a carnivore diet if you're into that kind of interaction. Um, there are probably lots more I should be thinking of, but I don't have them at the tip of my tongue. We've, we've, we've probably run it out for this session. Um, so I've asked you a bunch of questions. It's only fair to give you the opportunity, if you want, to um, ask me some questions if if you have any at this point 
Well, I am eager to find out where you will be going with all of the great information that you have gathered and where, um, where I can find out more actually <laughs> about the other parts of this story. Because, you know, I think when you're talking about meat eating, you have the, the impact on the human being to eat meat, which has been grossly twisted and misunderstood in, in my view. And, and you have the in, environmental impact of farming and, and all of the um, questions about raising meat. And actually, I do have a question um, to you about that. Could you tell me, um, I'm going to phrase this properly. Um, there seems to be a lot of confusion in my world about whether you've probably devoted lots of podcasts, episode, whole episodes to this, but when people ask me, do I need to be buying uh, meat that has been raised on a farm that uh, only does uh, grass finishing, can you tell me if that is correct in terms of the impact on the environment? Um, in terms of environmental impact, um, I think that the data is very different than many people who say that understand it to be. So I think that if people want grass-finished sheep, lamb, or, or beef, or goat, um, and they have a source of it and they can afford it, they by all means. But um, many of the things that people think they're getting when they go to that is already available in the supermarket. Um, that actually one of the things that makes people kind of go, um, when I say it, is that the emissions from cattle, so we're talking about burping methane, when cattle go into the feedlot, their emissions go down. That's the opposite of what I've been hearing. So, <laughs> welcome to my world. Um, and, and too many people still think it's farts. So, it, it's just the function that the more digestible, the lower the fiber, the oh. lower the emissions. Well, that makes perfect sense. And... Now, there's lots of assumptions. If you could have cattle on highest quality forage year-round, well, we live in a continental climate where we have something called winter, and <laughs> that doesn't occur. And so then you've got other systems at play. And in your part of the world, typically, you would have cow-calf producers who then wean the animals after five months and ship them somewhere else. In that somewhere else, those animals then either graze on high-quality pasture or they go into some kind of a backgrounding or finishing phase where they're going to get a, a higher energy ration. So, But there's reasons for doing that, and it's not uh, – one of, one of my menagerie is we have a tendency to think that the way – I support makes me or anyone who follows that ethical and anyone who doesn't isn't. Mm -hmm. And, and this 
is, I think, symptomatic of the division that exists today, where we have to be us and them. And if you take a step back and look at who's been behind a lot of the messaging, they don't care how you do it. It's the fact that you're doing it that matters to them. The fact that you're eating animal source food, they don't think should be taking place at all. And so the way to fight that is to fight against animal source food production, and it doesn't matter how it's done. And and so that's part of it. The other, and, and I, my mind was kind of leaping, and I should, you know, listening is not waiting for your turn to talk, Pete. You were asking in the beginning, um, Frederick Leroy has just launched publicly uh, what's called a dynamic white paper on the, you know, human health, um, animal welfare, environmental impact ethics of eating animal source foods. And there's two dozen or more um, scientists behind that effort. And the idea is that this is something that's already launched with a great deal of information, including links to supporting literature, and will grow over time. And so far, it's something I have a very minor part in, but it's something I'm happy to support. Um, where the information is going to go as far as what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to um, get a few projects uh, a bit more traction and... Uh, I must admit that your example is an inspiration, so maybe it'll go that way or maybe it'll go another, but the least I can do is introduce the various experts that I've been learning from this whole time. I just feel like this graduate student who's gotten to attend like the world's coolest graduate school with the broadest faculty possible, and yet a lot of the faculty don't talk to each other. They're, they're not aware of. Um, so I hope that we can introduce these really top quality people to each other so that, like you say, the puzzle pieces can start to fit into and we can have a much um, more holistic um, understanding and response. It really does need to be an interdisciplinary conversation. And I have likewise learned enormously from you. And uh, I wanted to mention that uh, your talk at CarnivoryCon was an important piece there as well, because although I mentioned that there were scientific aspects of the diet on humans, these, these questions about um, the, the other spheres that come into play once you start talking about meat eating are also very important. Um, so I'm very excited to have been part of this here for you and for you to be part of it for me. And I think we're all learning from each other. Couldn't agree more. And it's been my pleasure. Um, as I, I describe you as a sod sister. So whether you applied or not, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I'm not in touch with the membership committee, but I'm very grateful to uh, have met you, and again, that goes back several years. Um, I think, um, well, we probably met at uh, Ancestral Health in 12, um, but I do remember uh, attending, was it Breckenridge or, or one of those where uh, I really became more aware of you and what was what you were doing, and then 
you know, that's grown over the years. So thank you um, for being one of the members of my brain trust um, that I can, I can throw things past. And uh, I look forward to um, having the opportunity to have you come to other agricultural groups uh, and speak because, like you say, I think this interdisciplinary approach to, to getting people to understand more of this and maybe think about what they're doing in a new way um, will, will, I think, help them as well as many, many other people. So thank you very much. Thank you, Peter.